Hi there, Ron Verkirk here. Wow, these are testing and extraordinary times. We look at what's happening in Austria, and of course, Germany has now followed suit. It is soon going to be a criminal offence to exercise your right to refuse COVID-19 jabs. If we look at Greece, they're going to be um, levying a hundred euro a month fine for each person that remains unvaccinated. We were talking earlier this week at the World Council for Health meeting to a medical doctor in Australia who's been struck off the medical register and he has made it very clear and he's been struck off because he has spoken out and he's spoken out on, on a number of issues from lockdowns through to jabs. And he's made it very clear that if he uses now his doctor title, he will be criminalized for impersonation. So there is a process in which the level of coercion is being ramped up to an extraordinary degree. And of course, there is a, a very narrow line that, that separates that and mandating it to certain parts of the population. That seems to be very much part of the plan. And obviously that you have certain countries like Austria that are gonna do it across the board. And this is all happening at the very time that, that Omicron has appeared, a new variant that provides health authorities, governments, um, a reason, whether it's justified or not, to really ramp up this, this coercion, this pressure. The bottom line is, in the absence of mandates, do people have sufficient information to um, meet the legal obligation of informed consent? And we would say absolutely not. So the article we released this week has got what we consider to be the minimum information about what's in the jab, what's been found in them, how they work, um, how they affect the immune system. Um, and of course, what other options there are available for people who want to protect themselves from SARS-CoV-2. Um, so let me just give you a couple of snippets. So if you were to look, for example, at the mRNA jams, the, the basic process is that the messenger RNA contained within the lipid nanoparticle instructs the body outside of the nucleus to produce copies of the spike protein. This is the full length spike protein, but it's not identical to the spike protein that you find actually on the virus. What happens is that it has proline residues that are substituted in there to keep it more erect, to change its conformity, to hold it in its pre-fusion conformity so that it remains more exposed. Now, when you expose to the jab, what impact does it have when that spike protein does not behave in the way that a spike protein normally does? And of course, it is far too early to know. And it's interesting to note that uh, the Salk Institute has already determined that the spike protein that we were originally told is just basically the vehicle that the virus used to enter the body actually is cytotoxic in its own right. And in fact, many of the vascular effects that we see that are associated with severe COVID-19 disease are directly related to the spike protein. That work is uh, um, being carried out for pseudoviruses on Syrian hamsters and is very conclusive. Um, so um, the other, another aspect to look at is the lipid nanoparticles themselves. Yes, they're pegylated. Um, they contain peg that's often used in cosmetics. When you deliver 
pegs in nanoparticulate form. One of the things we know about nanoparticles is that they behave in a very different way. This is a, a new area of, of science. It is being used for targeted drug delivery, but to apply it to a global population when there is less data available in the public domain on these nanoparticulate lipid nanoparticles. Um, if you were in the food business and you were producing um, uh, emulsions based of lipid nanoparticles, you would not be able to put them on the market in foods um, with the available data that, that, that is there for, for these um, COVID-19 jabs. When we look at the um, viral vector um, jabs, there are some very disturbing elements. And let, let's just take, for example, the typical cargo will contain um, viral vectors. These are basically chip, chimp, common cold, adenovirus vectors that are genetically modified to do two things. One is to prevent them from replicating. Um, and another one is to insert a clone of the spike protein. Um, and when you look at the fact that in order to produce these um, adenoviral vectors, you need human cell lines. Now, these are fetal cell, cell lines, either kidney cell lines, in the case of the AstraZeneca, case of the Janssen, um, these are retinal fetal cell lines. Now, we, get, we are told that even if the cell lines are being used, which of course they are, um, you know, there's none left in the final product. Well, we will show you very clear evidence that that, that is not the case. In fact, as much as 80% of all the protein in these viral vector jabs, these are dirty jabs with all this additional protein are actually coming from these cell lines. Are the vegans, are the vegetarians, are religious groups being told that? Um, so another issue is the contaminants. We're being told that these jabs are super clean. The mRNA ones are, don't see any cell lines at all. So they're gonna be squeaky clean. That isn't the case. Why have 1.6 million jabs uh, from, from sent over to Japan had to be rejected because they had white floating matter or black particulate matter floating in them. Um, so, uh, and obviously that's before you look into the emerging evidence, for example, from the, um, from a scientist, Dr. Campra from the University of Almeria um, in, in Spain, that is suggesting the presence of reduced graphene oxide. Um, it is extraordinary that the claims on safety and effectiveness continue to be used given the amount of data available. And of course, what we have to do is also go back to basic principles in toxicology. The very fact that, that we're being asked, the population at large is being asked to roll the sleeves up repeatedly, because actually the mRNA jabs have a real issue with waning immunity. So now it has been determined that these have to be given every few months. This chronic exposure is something that we do not have data on. And of course, if the particles go into circulation and if they find their way into specific organs um, and into reproductive cells and produce spike protein, not only is there a risk from the spike protein in terms of its own cytotoxicity, if there is an immune reaction there, there is the potential for long-term impacts on fertility. So there are absolutely justifiable 
questions to be asked around this for anyone who's concerned about their young children being exposed. In terms of the data on um, the epidemiology of what is happening with this increasingly vaccinated population, um, and of course, ever younger people being exposed to COVID-19 jabs, Many people have been looking to the UK data, what used to be Public Health England, now the UK Health Security Agency data. And uh, we have linked to you the phenomenal work by um, Professor Norman Fenton, Martin Neal, Je Jessica Rose and others, um, Queen Mary University of London, that has really shown that there is gross misrepresentation of that data. When you look at particular strands of the data in the unvaccinated, you will see there are spikes that are associated with the time that the um, jabs were rolled out at particular age groups. This can only happen if within the unvaccinated population, you are actually adding people who have been previously jabbed. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons, we've been looking at the data very carefully. One, one of the reasons we've seen the pattern of data of late switching so that the um, establishment has the ability to say it is really the unvaccinated that are, that are causing the problem. So um, really important article for you to look at. Please read it. Please share it um, at this time so that we can move um, slightly closer to the goal of re-establishing some of these fundamental principles like the right to medically informed consent. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.